This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair 105, September 9, 1985. Today, Otto Scott, Mark Rushdooney, and myself will be discussing National Suicide. A book of that title was published over ten years ago, written by Anthony Sutton. A very important book. In a sense, our subject parallels that, although it is uh, in an entirely different area. We've chosen that subject because we see today a growing temper in this country and in fact throughout the Western world that is suicidal. We are told by Solomon in Proverbs that God declares that he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. We would have to say that in this century, with a growing rapidity, the Western world has been committing suicide. This marks this country, it marks Europe, and indeed nations beyond the frontiers of Europe. With regard to the United States, we see it in the fact that Otto has so well described in his book, The Other End of the Lifeboat, that we are working against South Africa, whom we need. Our survival depends on strategic uh, items that can be bought only from South Africa. South Africa in the hands of a Marxist state would spell death for us. Then, in the Far East, we have worked against Taiwan. We are working to destroy the Philippines. We are hostile to Japan, and despite the fact that there are problems there and in the Philippines and elsewhere, we must say that these countries are still basically our friends, that while they are not perfect and have serious faults, so does the United States. Japan is one of our two best customers. Japan driven into the Marxist orbit, and we can do that very readily with our present trend, can become the death of our future in the Pacific. And the Pacific Basin today is very important to us because economically the center of the world is no longer the Atlantic, it is the Pacific. It is the Pacific Basin where we do most of our trade. So we are working against our national self-interest. Let me uh, cite one little item as an instance of this. This is from uh, Human Events some time ago calling attention to a Supreme Court decision which said that no public teacher, public school teacher, can be fired for advocating, soliciting, imposing, encouraging, or promoting public or private homosexual activity. Now, that's suicidal, that kind of decision. Los Angeles 
has just passed an ordinance saying that there can be no discrimination against anyone because they have AIDS. They cannot be fired from any kind of position nor discriminated against in any fashion. And as two medical men said, this made their work very difficult and the future medically very difficult. And yet city after city has called Los Angeles to get the text of that measure because they intend to pass the same law. And some already have. We have to term that suicidal. Now, that's our concern in this hour. Otto, do you have some observations to make? Yes, I do. <coughs> uh, it's an interesting topic, and just before I came over here, I looked up a book that I have in my library called Decadent Societies by Robert M. Adams, North Point Press, San Francisco, 1983. I don't agree with Mr. Adams in the entire book, as I seldom agree with anybody in an entire book anyway. But he has an interesting definition of decadence. It is, in Adams's view, quote, a deliberate neglect of the essentials of self-preservation, an incapacity or unwillingness to face a clear and present danger. Very good. Let me add that I picked up a book last year on decadence with that title a trifling book, because the gist of it was that decadence is a subjective uh, term and is worthless, so we cannot call anything decadent, because someone else might consider it to be quite advanced. Mark, have you any observations? Well, uh, by way of example, we can look at our, our foreign policy, and I think uh, particularly, as you said, regarding Otto's book on South Africa and what has been our policy, uh, the policy of our State Department since World War II, if not before, is to destroy our friends and to support those who are against freedom and liberty. We did it to um, uh, China, We've done it, uh, we did it to Cuba, we've done it elsewhere, as Otto brought out in his book. And the policy of the State Department, even now, with regard to the sanctions against South Africa, now I understand Reagan is um, supporting these sanctions and proposing some of his own, It's to destroy a country that uh, is friendly to us, whose only enemies are Marxists. And uh, we do this over again, over and over again in our foreign policy. And our foreign policy seems to be to destroy liberty, to destroy governments around the world that allow any type of freedom, and to support those that are totalitarian. And um, so it's not just at home. It's not just our society that's suicidal, but it's our approach to the world at large. And it's where we're, where we're moving, suicide on all levels. Well, that suicide is not only in foreign policy, it's in domestic policy. 
An example of that is the ecology movement. Now, long before the term ecology became popular, I had written a paper on the need for ecological common sense from a biblical perspective. No one was interested in publishing it, and I lost it somewhere over the years. However, today ecology has become a, a, a form of hatred for man, hatred for civilization, a means of destroying it. I've referred on another occasion to the fact that uh, we have a law against killing rattlesnakes in California unless your life is endangered. Well, rattlesnakes are not an endangered species, but we certainly are doing all we can to protect them. Then we, uh, here in Calaveras County, are in an area of state and national forests. In the nearby county just to the south of us, the Forest Service last year planned during the winter to poison gophers because they were eating their way through stands of newly planted pine trees in the Stanislaus National Forest. They were destroying all the work that the Forest Service had gone to to replant a particular area. However, the Sierra Club said they opposed the poisoning program because of the chances it might endanger other wildlife. Well, the poisons were placed in the underground burrows of the gophers. So uh, their chances of uh, affecting birds and other animals was very minimal, and yet it was opposed. You have to term that kind of activity suicidal, but it does mark our present environmental movement. Well, we have a... I agree with that. <clears throat> I think that the environmentalists have cost us as much as we would have lost if we had lost a major war. They... Uh, and the environmental movement is responsible for the beginning of our industrial decline, much more so than international trade, because it takes now where it used to take a couple of years to put up a factory. It now takes between 8 and 15 and uh, it's almost impossible to create jobs if you can't put up uh, plants. I have a friend in San Diego who uh, was going to use a territory in the desert that he owned for motorcycle off-the-road uh, off vehicles to entertain themselves. He had to spend $60,000 in an environmental impact report first. This was in the middle of the desert. But I'd like to get back to the business of the uh, protectionist sentiment against Japan, etc. Uh, this morning's Wall Street Journal had an article by an interesting writer who said that the real problem is the overseas debt to American economy, which has been expanded through our bank and through the, the government's encouragement and so forth. 
Now, the only way these company, countries can repay that debt is to collect dollars from uh, trading with us. And $300 billion is owed to the United States by Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, and Mexico. These countries would be affected by a high tariff, as would Tehran and Korea, not just Japan. So that if we put up high tariff walls, these uh, Latin American countries that owe us so much money would not be able to repay. That would set off a ripple effect, mm -hmm. which would probably plunge us into a, a much worse depression than the 30s. Yes. That's just one instance of short-sightedness. I mean, the South African thing, of course, uh, I wrote a book about it, and I'm horrified at the book was researched in 1982 and 83. We hoped it would be published in 84 in September. The publisher dragged his feet, which they often do, because he thought it was an unpopular topic. Now it's on everybody's lips. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, it didn't come out until this year, 85. I had no idea when I turned that manuscript over that anybody could whistle up a storm like this with this rapidity with this unanimity. It's frightening to see how effective the Kremlin's arguments are in the West. We have no professors in the communist countries teaching capitalism, and yet when a Marxist journal was introduced about five years ago, it had 12,000 professorial subscribers before it appeared. Mm -hmm. Now, who blows this whistle that those dogs here, inaudible to human ears, I don't know, but the dogs of the press are barking. Mm -hmm. Now, it's true. If we didn't have the minerals from South Africa, there would be only one place, only a few places we could get them. We could get them from Zaire, we could get them from Zimbabwe, and we can get them from the Soviet Union. Now, if the Soviet Union is the sole provider of the minerals we need to maintain our establishment, to build a computer, an airplane, a tank, a bridge, an automobile, uh, to operate an oil refinery, uh, in many other areas. We couldn't function. What do you suppose would happen? My feeling is that they would have a summit conference. And uh, out of the summit, we would not be able to withstand them at a summit conference. Out of the summit conference will come peace, like Chamberlain, only peace in our time, a new world order, which Dr. Kissinger used to talk about all the time. We will send troops to the Soviet Union, and they will send troops here, and it'll be all one wonderful world, and it'll be the end of the United States. Yes. I, I gave it five years. J.B. Saunders last night in a conversation said three. He's already made his plans to move to Switzerland if this program continues. Well, Otto, you mentioned uh, protectionism and a tariff. I think it's amazing that people are so short-sighted that they forget that the stock market crash in 1929 led to 
one and a half million unemployed. That's all. Then, when the Democrats and Republics united in a protectionist tariff in 1931, the Smoot-Hawley Act, they doubled the unemployed almost overnight to three million. Because if you cannot sell to foreigners, uh, if you cannot, if you do not buy from foreign countries, they have no money, uh, and you cannot sell to them. Well, Roosevelt came in with even more protectionist measures and economic controls on domestic industry. The result was that by 36, the unemployment rate reached 16 million. And yet people look back to Roosevelt as the man who solved the problem. He compounded it. And yet we're going back to the same measures as though we had no knowledge of the past. Well, I forget who it was that said the lesson of the past is that people don't learn the lesson of the past. Mm -hmm. uh, Disraeli had a good comment like that, too. He said... Practical men are men who repeat the blunders of their predecessors. Disraeli was a very interesting person. Yes. He said about free trade, and I'll take the devil's advocate on this now, he said it's a fine principle but not a religion. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that free trade did for Great Britain in a world where tariff walls were going up, where the Germans began the business of putting up high tariffs, and where the United States always had a high tariff. This was a protectionist country from the beginning. Mm -hmm. New England insisted on these high tariffs, and it was one of the causes of the Civil War is that the South wanted those tariffs reduced. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> when England had uh, released, lowered its tariffs against agricultural products, the importation of agricultural products, the so-called corn laws, the first result for about 20 years was a great boom upward in which uh, the Industrial Revolution took another spurt forward and English trade benefited immensely. But after that, because English industry built so well, people left the land and they went into the factories and the cities, which is a phenomenon we see over and again when industrialization begins to pick up. And by the 1880s and 1890s, England was no longer able to feed itself. In World War One, this almost led to its defeat because the German U-boat blockade almost starved England out. And uh, I would have to say that free trade is a marvelous principle in a free trade world. It's like disarmament. If the other guy disarms, it's good. What do we do when the other fellow doesn't? Now, the European economic community has got high tariff walls around it. It will not accept Japanese goods. It will not accept our goods. Uh, Europe is composed of a multitude of small nations who are dominated by the most narrow-minded people in the world. And the United States is only lately, only since World War II, gotten around to the idea of international trade to begin with. Uh, so it's a difficult situation to maintain. 
Yes, but we have to recognize, too, that Europe has made itself peripheral in the world economy by its protectionism. We help make it peripheral. True. But you see, consider what Singapore and Hong Kong have become in the world. Uh, one of our own group, uh, Grace Flanagan, her brother, Bob, is much of the time in Singapore because his California-based corporation is now doing more and more out of Singapore because they find that there's much more freedom that way. Mm. And Singapore now is becoming a center of world trade. That's interesting. It was fascinating for me to discover last April at an economic conference in the East that as a nation we are exporting agricultural products and importing finished products. That's true, but what we're doing, uh, I read a, a book about that not too long ago, and the thesis was that industrially we are way out in front. What we have done is to surrender things that uh, we developed because we're more innovative. For example, for a while the center of uh, world manufacture of automobiles was the United States. Now other countries are picking that up. But we are pioneering in other areas so that industrially we're always out in front and the American ability has been to concentrate on the innovative and let other nations pick up something a generation or two or three after we have developed it and then take over and we move into the new areas constantly. That may be true industrially. I think it is true industrially because the private sector contains the best brains in the country, mm -hmm. although they're very overly pragmatic in my view and overly short-sighted. Other commentators have discussed this, this uh, every three months quarterly report syndrome, which keeps us from a long range in mm -hmm. terms of a large corporation. But... <clears throat> To get back to your title, National Suicide, one of the things that seems to have overtaken the United States, not since Vietnam, but since the Soviets got the atom bomb, has been an inability to use our power anywhere in the world. Domestically, the United States, the forces of the United States government are afraid to use, the, use their powers and authority to suppress crime. Now, on the whole question of South Africa, uh, in 1984, there were uh, relatively few murders in South Africa, 350 or so. Uh, Detroit had more, had 450. Uh, over the span of the United States, there were 18,000 murders. If, if we're ten times larger than South Africa, you know, we're being quite a bully here great big power like the United States is beating on a country one-tenth its size, where we cringe before all our other enemies, our real enemies. But the point that I want to make is that the government has lost its nerve, internally, externally, and everywhere else. They're afraid of the newspapers. Mm -hmm. I never remember anybody being afraid of a journalist. 
Why should they be afraid of a loudmouth? Reagan, more than any other man in the White House, is afraid of the press and reacts to it. I, in, in that regard, I can remember even back when I was in high school being amazed at watching presidential press conferences where the reporters, uh, whose qualification must include having big mouths, would literally scream at the president yes. to get his attention. Yes. And, and be uh, insulting. That's right. Can you imagine, this is what Solzhenitsyn said. He said they're awfully, strong, awfully brave in the West. But he said the same reporters will go over to an Iron Curtain country. And along will come the smallest functionary who will say, shut up and move along there. And they shut up and move along. When they go, they, that our newspapers do not refer to the leaders of the Soviet Union or to the leaders of any other country in the terrible terms that they customarily apply to our own elected officials. I was uh, doing a little bit of cleaning in my library this morning, and I threw away a cartoon, which was a delight, but I can't save everything, because it uh, stated things so tellingly. It was of a bureaucrat sitting at, at a desk and uh, saying... Uh, just a moment, Mr. Gorbachev. We'll make sure you get everything you want. But first, we've got to get rid of these farmers who we've, whom we've got to foreclose on immediately. It's awfully close to the truth. Yes. Uh, it's almost like our police force. The, uh, the greatest effort of American police is to stop traffic violations on the highways speeders, etc. If they applied the same energy to ordinary crime, there wouldn't be any. Because when you get in the car, you know you've got to watch yourself. Criminals don't have to watch themselves as much as a motorist. Mm -hmm. To turn to the paper again, uh, there was something in... Uh, the neighboring county's uh, paper earlier this year about phantom forests. Forests that had been burned over, had been uh, given appropriations to replant, but somehow or other the replanting had never been done, although these phantom forests appeared on the uh, books and were growing steadily every year. The money had been deflected one place or another, or there had not been enough, but at any rate, these phantom forests were on the books of the Forest Service. I was reminded of Gogol's Dead Souls, mm. the man who uh, did business in uh, serfs. Uh, serfs who were actually dead, but if you bought and sold them, you had uh, status. You had so many souls. I'd like to call attention, because I think it fits in this context, uh, to something in uh, 
Anthony Sutton's Phoenix Letter. Um, very excellent statement as he reviews the future of the country, pro and con, inflation, deflation, and so on. And the point he makes is that uh, the federal debt is out of control. The federal budget is out of control. That we have reached the point where Congress is no longer in charge. It is simply inflating. It is appropriating. It is doing nothing to bring the deficit or the budget under control. Well, we can talk about these various manifestations of a sickness spiritual sickness, a malaise. It's worse than a, a malaise. It's a real honest-to-goodness disease. In that book on decadent societies, he set aside the social decadence as not really the core of what we're talking about. Because, and he pointed out, and it is true, that uh, even in declining periods, great works of art appear, etc., etc., there is always a, uh, a core, a remnant of the uh, sincerely religious. I, I can think of the crowds that used to listen to Billy Graham and the—I uh, mean, to Billy Sunday in the mm-hmm. early 20s—and yet the 20s were a very downward period. What we're really talking about here is an inability to confront reality, which is a complicated way of committing suicide. A, uh, an alcoholic evades society through liquor, and liquor, of course, kills him slowly. A drug addict flees from reality with his drugs, and the drugs, of course, kill him slowly. The United States, the government of the United States, appears to be absolutely determined not to regard the growing Soviet menace as real. They refuse to admit what this book, the new KGB, made very clear, that the Soviets from the beginning have considered themselves at war with the, with the West, at war. And anything that you do in war is fair. The West insists that the Soviets are not at war with us, that there's no danger, there's no peril, and therefore we can go blithely on our way throwing one baby country after another out of the sled to placate the wolves. To what extent do you think this is a failure to face reality and, or, on the other hand, a determination to move in a particular direction? I think it's primarily a failure to face reality because this is cowardice. And cowardice and fear are parts of lack of faith, having no nothing to believe in, not believing in anything. And uh, therefore you tremble. If you really believe in the Christian doctrine, for instance, there's nothing in life that you can really fear because the next life is going to be better than this. And even the Mohammedan, are told, I mean, Khomeini's young boys are told if they will go to heaven, and they believe and they go. And they look upon us with contempt because we have lost this. Our forebears have it. 
They could fight. And anyone who's ever been in a fight, and I don't think the average American boy today is allowed to get into a fight, but you know that once you're in a fight, you forget all your fear. You're involved in the action. And we can't die any quicker with the atom bomb than we could from a bullet. Death is death. But the United States right now is going to a summit meeting with the Soviet Union. For what purpose? Last month in Geneva, as you know, there was a conference held with regard to the Soviet Union. And one analyst stated flatly that the Soviet Union, despite its military strength, had so many internal problems that a collapse was likely in five years or so. Unless, of course, we try to save it again. At the same time, other economists have said that our collapse economically and in other ways is likely by the end of this decade. And that this is true of a good deal of the world. So uh, the love of death marks the whole world. And the whole world is moving on a suicidal path. Perhaps we ought to concern ourselves now with the counter-trends to this, which, as we pointed out in the last uh, session we had together, are entirely on the side of uh, Christian faith, Christian reconstruction. I received a copy of a book that uh, one attorney uh, in Montana, Douglas Kelly, who may be a distant relative of our Douglas Kelly, has written, and the title is From the Monastery to the Marketplace. And it's account of his own uh, pilgrimage from life within a church and looking at the church in a monastic sense as the be-all and end-all of his life to the recognition that the faith has to be carried into the marketplace and into all the world. I think his title is a good one, From the Monastery to the Marketplace, and I think this is beginning to mark the church increasingly. Well, that's really uh, an individual progression similar to the Reformation. Yes. It's an exact repeat. Mm -hmm. And uh, the new Reformation, uh, you which we refer to as a reconstruction, is going to have to overcome the uh, errors of the first Reformation, yes. which was destroyed by internal disunity, by arguments over uh, dogma, doctrine. And I remember at that uh, giving that speech recently in Valley Forge that uh, I angered some of the high school teachers who were the audience and one sitting in the front row interrupted me which is rare in those sort of things and hollered out what is a Christian and I said anyone who believes that Jesus is God and there was quite a bit of silence it was a very simple answer mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if 
that same sort of answer would be given by the members of a great many denominations. But to me, it covers the subject. Mm-hmm. And if we have a reconstruction on that level, then we'll stop the suicide because I don't know any Christians or any believing Christians who are suicidally inclined. Yes, there is an interesting analogy to the pre-Reformation era and our own time. In the pre-Reformation era, medieval theology had become extremely pietistic. Its concern was with the inner world. This temper, which uh, had not even marked monastic life, to the same extent previously, became very popular. You had all kinds of lay groups that were uh, totally concerned with their inner spiritual condition. Now, this was not a healthy development, although some tend to look upon it as pre-Reformation developments. Actually, it was anti-Reformational because it did not see the relevance of the faith to the world. It was concerned with the individual and his feelings, his uh, status before God in an emotional way. The result was the Reformation and then the Counter-Reformation became concerned with the world. Then, with the 17th century, pietism arose again in both Catholic and Protestant circles. The Enlightenment took over and began to command Europe, and Christianity progressively became what it is today, a subcultural fact. Saturday, when I was speaking in uh, San Francisco, I called attention to the fact that This past month, or perhaps it was even this past week, the World Championship Monopoly games were held somewhere on the East Coast. I didn't know such a thing existed until I read an account of it in a magazine. Well, now Monopoly is a subcultural fact. It has no effect on our culture. It's a game. Christianity... Protestant and Catholic has become a subcultural fact. Here it commands over half the population. You have, what is it, 55 million who claim to be born-again Christians. But they're subcultural. They're not molding the culture, or haven't been until the 80s. Now they're beginning to have an impact. Now, I see the hope for the future in this and in the Christian school movement which is going to mold a generation to relate their faith and is going to produce superior students. Mark, you might report on what the school is doing under your leadership in Darlene, the test results. Well... We give at the end of each school year a a standardized achievement test. It's the oldest one we can find. I believe it's a 1972 edition. And uh, our students are running 
in, in the lower grades two and three years ahead in the our eighth grade graduates last year tested it in uh, in the twelfth grade which was the top of the chart um, there's a lot that we can can be done in, in education one of our teachers uh, sons who's in high school too old for our school which only goes through junior high uh, himself has come to the conclusion he'd love to go to a Christian school he came home at the beginning of this year school year which just started in biology somehow they brought Satanism into the textbook in biology it's been in literature textbooks and such before but how they managed to bring it into biology I didn't even want to ask and we're not doing miracles at the school but we're teaching them and we have a good foundation and we develop character and we develop discipline we develop courtesy to the teachers so there's obedience and the children know what's expected of them it's certainly no more than was done in schools commonly a few years ago and um, it's just one small uh, case of, of how our educational system has been suicidal we've designed schools that do not teach and they produce children who think alike and that will accept what they're what they read in the newspapers what they're taught on television when I was a kid it was a commonly uh, told um, fact that newspapers catered catered to about a 13 year old mind I don't know where that came from but I think that's pretty much true and it's that mentality of uh, the news report on the evening news what they get on evening television and what they get in newspapers that that pretty much controls what the average person's day thinks and uh, this is what our educational system has to get away from we have to stop producing clones that believe what they're expected to believe let me add mark that if we uh, discounted the grades of the students who came in late the average uh, was about five years ahead of grade oh there, there's no problem that is a that's a problem for for all Christian schools but you can't take somebody who's in junior high and put them back in third grade mm -hmm. just parents won't stand for it it's 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 too much mm -hmm. it's the children you take from the beginning and you take all the way through um, they just there there's we haven't even seen the limits of what the capabilities there are and unfortunately a lot of parents don't even think about Christian education until their parents their children are in the middle grades and they and they have problems mm -hmm. or they see what they're getting and they mm -hmm. finally figure it out from a finished product and they say now can you do something with my child the same thing often happens when their kids get to junior high or high school they see this awful stuff in the textbooks this mm -hmm. garbage mm -hmm. and they say maybe if I put them in the Christian schools I can straighten them around and so you have this wide divergence of academic abilities in one classroom it's uh, a problem that um, it's going to have to be faced increasingly by the Christian school movement and um, it's a difficult one and it's where homeschooling has a real advantage 
that's that's the ultimate way to educate a child is uh, one-on-one with a parent educating a child and it's why it's I think an increasingly effective ministry and it's spreading with great rapidity it used to be that conventions regional conventions in some states would have 50 or 60 homeschoolers now they number one in two thousand and uh, the movement has just begun to take off this is uh, a program for life for control of the future then the number of uh, Christian groups that have involved themselves in politics have involved themselves in working with uh, teenage uh, drug addicts, uh, convicts, uh, delinquents, and so on. In one area after another, the amount of Christian activity is increasing. On top of that, we're seeing things like this children's initiative in California. It's a Christian product. It's going to be on the ballot. And more and more Christians are saying, this is what we want, and we're going to work to get it. Well, I think it is. I think the parallel is probably closer to the Renaissance and the Reformation. Mm -hmm. The excesses of the Renaissance led to the Reformation. The excesses of this period are leading people to this kind of a reaction. And, of course, one of the things about the Renaissance and the present period, which is interesting, is the focus on the inner man. A few years ago, they kept talking about uh, uh, people who were looking for themselves. They they were trying to find out who they were, (laughs) looking for their own identity. And uh, you reminded me of it when you talked about the scholastic uh, pietists who uh, totally focused on personal salvation. Mm -hmm. The hell with the rest of the world. Let the rest of the world go to hell. Let me be saved and go to heaven. And the road to heaven isn't... I don't think, uh, paved with that particular desire. It's paved with doing something about the world in which you live and standing up for the faith in your own society. Uh, If you don't do that, you're nothing. You're nobody. If you focus on salvation, it's good evidence probably that you don't have it. Because if you have it, then you begin to live in terms of it. Well, then that brings us back to the question of the courage. You know that uh, a mutual friend of ours, whose name I will not divulge because of this tape is going all around the world, uh, a retired general told me uh, at a meeting on the occasion when the United States Armed Forces lost its soul. He said it was in the Kennedy administration He said the heads of the chiefs of staff decided to brace the president about his flaccid policy vis-a-vis the Soviets. And somebody leaked this to the press, and Time magazine ran a warning article. So the president, Kennedy, beat them to the punch and called the generals into a meeting. And our friend was among the lesser officers, a colonel or lieutenant colonel or something, who accompanied his chief and then waited outside the closed doors. And when they came out, he rushed up to his uh, superior and said, what happened? And his superior said, we caved in. 
And he said two weeks later his superior retired. And the army has never since stood up. Now, we know we have lots of Christians. Uh, We used to have, at least, in the army, in the armed services. Yet, they're not expressing the courage and the faith that they should in the face of the suicidal policies of their civilian superiors. I think that's going to change. There are signs of... uh a resistance to this developing, a feeling that uh, someone in the military is going to have to head up a stand against suicidal policies. I certainly hope so. These are the people we hope to defend us. Yes. Well, things are happening, and... uh, it is encouraging now, as one travels back and forth across country, to see the growing concern for Christian Reconstruction. The feeling that uh, the people in Washington have no direction, that they are suicidal, and Christians have to express themselves. Well... The Christian school movement is relatively recent. Yes. And it's a real race. Paul Johnson in the Commentary magazine ran an interesting essay on the South African situation. He called it the race for South Africa. He started off in the article by commenting on the fact that the world's richest power is beating on what is still regarded as a third world country. And what a shameful thing it was for the United States to adopt this bullying tactic. He also pointed out that the United States is going to injure the economy of South Africa. And yet we're supposed to be for industrialization. We're supposed to be for a private venture. We're supposed to be for free enterprise and for jobs. By injuring the economy of South Africa, we're going to interfere with a process which has been ongoing down there as they have increased and improved their technology, they've been able to hire more and more blacks and to train them and skill them into higher and higher jobs. So capitalism is creating more democracy in South Africa all the time. By injuring that economic drive, we are going to injure the blacks, we're going to injure the whole country, and we're going to do it in the name of goodness. Now, my feeling is that this whole campaign is something we've been very much accustomed to watching in recent years and has not been labeled. And this is racism in the name of Mm anti-racism. Very definitely. I think uh, our equalitarians are very often the worst racists because what they are in effect saying with their equalitarianism is that... uh, we don't like what you are, therefore we're going to treat it as non-existence and ob- existent and obliterate it. Instead of respecting the differences, therefore obliterating them and treating them as non-existent. Well, really the differences are the crucial to know. Uh, I recall my grandfather in Caracas, uh, 
pointing out the fact that uh, his children had a Christmas tree at a time when nobody around there had any such Christmas. They had a piñata. He said, we celebrate Christmas in this house differently than our neighbors. There is no reason to remind them of the difference. <laughs> but it is very important to know the difference. We all know that people have certain basic similarities, childbirth, death, etc. It's the same with all members of the human race. But what we really need to know is the differences, not to eliminate them, but to respect them. Yes. Exactly. Any comments, Mark? Well, it's what we've, what we've touched on uh, here in the latter part of our conversation is that um, our national suicide is a moral problem which manifests itself in, in the character of our, our leaders and in the character of our culture. And... To the extent that we are looking for an answer to the, our national suicide, we have to look to God. And the manifestation of any reversal of this we're going to see in, in the Christian community. And we've seen a great vitality in the Christian community in recent years. Christian schools, a lot of the stands churches have taken against state interference and such. And I think that... Um, if, if the activity we've seen of Christians had taken place 20 years ago, things would be far different. Um, but then again, we could also say that if Christians had been 20 years ago, say in the mid-60s, where, where they are in the mid-80s, things might have been quite different. But it would have been an easy way out. Perhaps too, more easy than, than we deserve. Now, the problems we face we have to acknowledge as the problems that come with our ac actions. Any answers that we see are going to come from God and through the Christian community. It won't be an easy answer, an, an easy way out. We won't be able to, well, to reverse this policy in time, to have our economy turn to a financial uh, stability in time to prevent collapse. We're going to have problems no matter what we do. If we were to reverse things today, we're going to have serious problems, and that's good because we deserve them. And I think we need that judgment. We have to feel that pain somewhat. But any, any good that's going to come out of that is going to come from God, and I think the worse things are now, any good that comes out of this, it's going to be obvious that this is a Christian community. And this is by the grace of God that we get out of this. Well, I think that's true. We've inherited as a nation many of the liberties for which the English spent their blood. Mm -hmm. We have failed signally the founding generation. We have given away and abandoned many of our constitutional rights and liberties, our control over the government, our control over ourselves. Nobody has any rights that they will not defend. The world is not so constituted that it will respect the rights of a coward. If 
you want to protect yourself, you have to stand up and do it yourself. The United, the people of this country are going to have to earn. They've been living off their capital. They're going to have to restore the property, restore their inheritance, and they're going to have to work and suffer to do it. I agree with you on that. Of late, there has been uh, a renewed interest in one of the really remarkable men of the early years of this country, Fisher Ames. Fisher Ames was a congressman in the first Congress. Some have said, had it not been for his bad health, he very well could have been one of our first presidents. Fisher Ames wrote uh, a long letter in which he predicted that this country, because of its resources and locations and because of the uh, freedom it had, was going to be a tremendous force in the world. But he felt that with it would come a heedlessness and a self-destruction, as it were, because people would lose the character that was important for the development of freedom and for this country. So he expected somewhere down the road this country would come to a major crisis created by its lack of character and then would have to face up to the issues in order to have the future it could have. I was reminded of Fisher Ames and also of a sentence in uh, Whittier, as the two of you spoke. Or no, I believe it was Lowell, James Russell Lowell, in a poem on shipwreck. I read it when I was, I believe, a junior at the university, and it had a profound effect on me because I recognized that it was true, even though I didn't like it. It spoke of us, human beings, as we who by shipwreck only find the shores of divine wisdom. So, the shipwreck is near and the divine wisdom is near. And we can rejoice in that because God is preparing us for that. God is giving us a growing and a revived faith whereby we can face the world crisis that is very near and come through it with wisdom and a renewed power and a renewed freedom, God willing. Our time is virtually over. Is there something in the way of a final comment, Otto? I'm never very good at final comments. I'll have to skip. <laughs> Uh, Mark, all right, let me just add this note. I have in my hand a card uh, that Otto brought home recently. He was in Seattle and in Detroit as well to speak at monetary conferences. And while there, he took a tour of uh, the Puget Sound area on one of the harbor tours, and the captain of the boat was someone who reads our reports and listens to the tapes, Captain Steve Dudley. Well, it's interesting how in so many places we do encounter those of you who are listening to us and are reading us and are previously unknown to us. 
We do enjoy these sessions with you, and we do appreciate your interest and your support. God bless you all.